and I grew to understand that my role was really to understand every bit of their job uh, to the greatest detail I could so that I could do whatever was necessary to keep them flying and to keep them fully effective with what they did. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Air Force Lieutenant General Dr. Mark Ediger WarDocs. Dr. Ediger is a family medicine and aerospace medicine trained physician. He received his MD degree at the University of Missouri and holds a Master of Public Health degree from the University of Texas in San Antonio. He served as a flight surgeon for the 94th Fighter Squadron and was the command surgeon of the Air Force Special Operations Command at Hurlburt Field in Florida. General Ediger has commanded multiple medical groups as well as being the commander of the Air Force Medical Operations Agency. Ultimately, he served as the 22nd Surgeon General of the Air Force. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we are privileged to be joined by retired Air Force Lieutenant General, Dr. Mark Ediger. Sir, welcome to Wardox. Pleasure to be here. Great to be with you and your audience. General Ediger, your background is a little unusual from the normal pathway of military physicians in that you trained and then practiced as a rural family physician for five years before you entered the Air Force. What led you to consider Air Force medicine as a career choice? Yeah, it was unusual in that I came to the Air Force as a fully qualified, fully trained medical specialist. You know, going through medical school, I was pretty sure that being a rural family doc was really what I wanted to do forever. And it was a great experience, but, and I did it for five years, very successful, very hard work and a great experience, both being a clinician with a full scope of practice with a community hospital, doing obstetrics, busy office practice, nursing homes. But at about the three-year point, I realized that I really wanted something more. And I became interested in, uh, in aerospace medicine and being a flight surgeon. I, mean, you know, I wanted to be an operational flight surgeon. And that's what interested me in the Air Force originally. I think also what attracted me to it was I re- really wanted to be a part of a mission, a big mission doing difficult, challenging work and the function as part of a larger team engaged in something worthy and something challenging. And uh, being a, a rural family doc was plenty challenging. It was definitely worthy, but the, the opportunity to uh, support a flying squadron and to be a part of a team making that flying squadron fully successful really appealed to me. And so uh, that led me to the decision to, uh, to go on active duty with the Air Force. And going in, all I, all I really wanted to do was be a flight surgeon. That was my aspiration. So you did have that opportunity and completed an aerospace medicine residency and currently have the rating as chief flight surgeon with more than 800 hours, including 90 combat support hours and 38 combat hours. What qualifies for a flying combat hour versus a flying combat support hour? Yeah, it's primarily whether or not the airspace you're in is is over a conflict zone. So in my case, those combat support hours were almost all flying around Iraq, whereas the combat hours were inside of 
And so uh, the way they code the flying time in that particular scenario, if we didn't enter Iraqi airspace, it was combat support. And so an example of that would be a strategic reconnaissance platform, which, you know, I would go up and fly on occasionally. These were basically sensor platforms. They would patrol, this is before the invasion, they would patrol the Iraqi border, but they weren't supposed to go inside Iraqi airspace. And so that would be a combat support hour. If you go into, into Iraqi airspace, it's combat. You know, one day when I was at the 363rd, we had all the tankers in the air war there. So there was a tanker that took off every 30 minutes around the clock. And so if I ever had a little bit of time to go fly, I could just go step over and grab a tanker mission and I could go up with the tanker and just see how they were doing, watch what they did, watch the boom operator, the fuel fighters and stuff. And so early in the, uh, the air campaign before the invasion, all the tanker tracks were south of the Iraqi border but the problem was Turkey decided we couldn't fly tankers out of Insulik. So they couldn't refuel the air, the fighters that were going north. So I came in to fly one, went over and said, hey, can I get on a tanker? And they said, sure, doc, there you go, get on that one. And I went into the briefing and uh, our tanker track was over Karbala, Iraq. So, you know, nobody had ever flown a tanker up there. And I said, really, are we, our tanker track is over the middle of Iraq now? You know, because there had been all these air defense things, which they'd been bombing regularly. And they said, yep, General Mosley moved all the tankers up over Iraq. And they said the first tanker left an hour ago and General Mosley was on it. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, that that turned that tanker mission into a combat mission. Can you tell us a little bit about those experience of flying in combat and how that shaped your future career in Air Force medicine leadership? Yeah, it really did have a remarkable impact on what I did the remainder of my time in uniform. I was a family physician with a full scope of practice in the Air Force, and I continued that full scope of practice as a squadron flight surgeon, continued to do obstetrics, and continued to practice inpatient medicine uh, because I was fortunate enough to be assigned to uh, a base where they had a hospital where I could do that. And uh, what I learned was that being a family physician was a great background for being a squadron flight surgeon. The role of the squadron flight surgeon is to um, help people in that squadron be fully successful uh, within the mission, keep them healthy, to keep them safe, but also to take care of their family. We ask a lot of people in uniform and to uh, have assured uh, medical support that knows the family it meant a lot to the people in those flying squadrons. And so I found that they really appreciated having a, a flight surgeon in the squadron who uh, was able to uh, provide health care for the whole family. And it really helped me get to know people in the squadron because I also knew their family. And so a big part of being a successful flight surgeon is really being part of the mission and understanding what the mission requires. So that, that involves flying with the squadron. And so my first two assignments uh, as a flight surgeon, I was in fighter squadrons, which I was really charged up about, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, and I learned a lot about the fighter mission and, and what the demands are, not only of the people flying and operating fighter aircraft, but the people who are maintaining. And I grew to understand that my role was really to understand every bit of their job uh, to the greatest detail I could so that I could do whatever was necessary to keep them flying and to keep them fully effective with what they did. Those fighter pilots were hell-bent teaching me how to fly that jet reasonably well. <laughs> and they worked pretty hard. I think it was a matter of pride to them. They said, yeah, if we could it'll teach this clueless doctor to fly this thing a little bit, 
uh, we can teach anybody. So uh, we'd go out and normally we'd go out, do a training mission, and then they would give me the jet in the back seat to fly it back. And of course they'd land it. But, uh, uh, and so, uh, so I'd, I'd be, I'd be sweating in the back trying to, trying to do, do this right. And they'd be making fun of me from the seat. And, uh, it was, it was always a lot of fun. So what was the, what was the craziest maneuver that you got to do in a jet from the back seat? Um, you got to do full acrobatics because one of my assignments was uh, for a uh, squadron that uh, trained pilots. And so they flew the T-38, which is full, you know, uh, not supersonic, but it was a fast jet. And so uh, when I was in there, they assigned me to a flight of instructor pilots they called the Greybeards. And so the Greybeards were these lieutenant colonels uh, who weren't going to be colonels. And uh, their last assignment in the Air Force was as an instructor pilot. And so, uh, and so I was flying with the Greybeards. And so I flew mostly with a guy named Larry Records, we called him Motown. And uh, Motown was amazing. He had done a tour in the Navy flying Tomcats so carriers as an exchange pilot. And so Larry had me fly every syllabus in the pilot training uh, course. Uh, and, uh, and so over the course of my first year in that squadron, I, uh, I flew all of the same syllabus. So, you know, so that included all the, all the acrobatics and had to actually be proficient at them and things I didn't do well. They, they, they'd chew me out for it. And, uh, Probably the thing I had the hardest time getting proficient at was formation flying in a tight formation. I'd always be a little bit off or a little bit wobbly and and uh, and I'd catch grief for that. But they actually finally got me to where I was pretty good at that. But, <laughs> so, so did the, the pilots ever try and make you pass out pulling bunch of G's and I never passed out in the jet. Uh, you know, it was a nine the F-15 was a nine G airplane. And so we did a lot of nine G's, but uh, I was always I was always okay. Uh, I did pass out in the centrifuge, uh, and uh, that was being videotaped. And they, they used that videotape in training for several years till I told them to quit using it because it was embarrassing. But uh, I never actually passed out in the jet. When I first started flying, the jet would really make me pretty queasy, uh, not actively airsick, but that, that passed with time. So as an aeromedical specialist, um, physician, how, how would you, if you had a pilot who passed out, while they were flying, I mean, what what was the protocol to make sure that they could safely go back to flying? Oh, that lost consciousness while flying. Well, that happened, uh, and sometimes you know it, it led to a mishap, which was always bad. But in most cases, it did not. And so uh, we had a uh, an evaluation protocol where we would first of all evaluate them medically to see if anything was going on clinically that had diminished their G tolerance. In most cases, there was nothing going on clinically. Um, it was just that they had, um, they were so focused on what they were doing with the jet at the time, trying to, to do the tactics that they didn't uh, do the NIG straining maneuver well, and they let them pass out. And so we would uh, do the clinical evaluation, um, and we would evaluate the tape from the aircraft to diagnose why they passed. And usually we could figure it out from the tape because you could hear their breathing, and you could figure out if their NIG straining maneuver was right. And then you'd, you'd basically coach them on uh, how to avoid having that happen again. If there was reason to wonder if they were really okay to fly again, then we'd send them to the centrifuge and do an evaluation of the which always sucked. Nobody liked going to centrifuge. That felt way worse than that. What, what, would, you say, what would you say is the, the most challenging clinical case that you ever faced aerospace? Um, <clears throat> clinical case, um, I had a senior officer who uh, developed coronary arteries, and we just happened to pick it up. 
on a resting ECG, really nonspecific changes. Did a treadmill. It wasn't quite right either. And ultimately, he ended up getting cast and he had significant disease, ended up with, with, with a cabbage. And, uh, and at that time, General Carlton was a surgeon general. I was, I was the senior officer's flight surgeon. Nobody had ever returned to flying in the Air Force cabin. And, uh, but, uh, but I did succeed in getting him a waiver, and he was the first pilot to return to flying at Cabbage. Uh, and that took a lot of uh, research, literature reviews, working with cardiologists, getting into the data, looking at his anatomy. Uh, and ultimately, we were able to make a compelling case uh, where we quantified his risk of having an event in flight. And uh, he, he did not fly single seat. He was in a multi-seat aircraft. So there was always a co-pilot. And, uh, and so I got, I got him back flying. I was, you know, but that was clinically challenging. I, I had some others that were cha- plenty, actually, that were challenging in the fighter mission where they were single seat and it was a lot more sensitive. But um, uh, that, one was, that one was an interesting process. And it was ultimately General Carlton who got him, you know, agreed that he should fly again. I remember a fighter pilot, young fighter pilot, came back from survival school. He was he was new out of training. Government had invested millions of dollars in training him to be a, an F-15 pilot. But he came back from survival school with a brachial plexus palsy because of the backpack he'd worn at survival school. And so he had limited use of his fingers in one hand for an extended period of time. And so uh, we were able to get him back to full function, full flying. It took time. But uh, that really uh, demonstrated to me that I actually needed to understand what he needed to do with the fingers of his left hand because of the switches that were on the throttle of the aircraft. And so the fact that I flew with them in the F-15 in the backseat, of course, and the fact that I did simulator missions in order to learn how to operate it, it actually helped me work with the orthopedic surgeons that were taking care of him and really helping with the rehabilitation to get him back to flying. In terms of flying in a combat mission, I think the thing that I came to realize from that experience was that uh, they truly do train like they fight. And so uh, flying a combat mission was, of course, different, but it wasn't that different from the, from the many training missions that, that I've been a part of. And so that's the first thing I noticed is that they had standards and ways of communicating, of interacting, of preparing, and of operating that they uh, sustained throughout combat, just as they did in training. And by applying those same standards, it, it was evident that they were able to accomplish some very challenging combat missions and still do it successfully because they were very accustomed to standard ways of operating. The other thing I learned from being a flight surgeon operationally was the teamwork aspect of the air crew, which translates directly into medicine. And so People think of fighters as a single seat mission where, you know, you're uh, you're in there alone as a fighter pilot uh, and it's not really a team event, but it is very much a team event because fighters operate uh, flights. And so you have multiple aircraft, even though they may be single seat fighters, you have multiple aircraft that are actually working together. And to do that, they can't talk a lot on the radio like you saw on Top Gun. They actually talk very little, but they have brief, concise words that they use. They've developed in training, and they know what those words mean, and they communicate succinctly and precisely. And those communications are meant to build awareness and also to maintain safety. And so watching how those teams work together 
in order to do what they do safely and effectively by employing standards in terms of how they collaborate really had a big impact on me and uh, really translated later in my career to how we approach safety and quality of care in Air Force medicine. The other thing I noticed about their teamwork was that everybody on the team had a role and a responsibility. And so when I was in special operations, I was a flight surgeon for heavy lift helicopters, MH-53 payloads. And typically, I would be uh, on the tail ramp with the tail gunner when we flew mission. And uh, when a payload was fast roping a team, let's say, onto a rooftop, maybe through, through the treetops onto a rooftop, pilots in the front would go into a hover and they would drop the rope and it needed to go right where it needed to be. And they couldn't see where the rope was. They were 100% dependent on those enlisted gunners in the back to give them precise directions that they would follow. And that's what enabled the team to step off the tail ramp, grab that rope, and just go down and trust the fact that that rope would be exactly where it should be. And if one of those tail gunners said, knock it off, the, the, the whole crew would stop what they were doing, figure out what the issue was, and, uh, and work it out. Not unlike an operating room team where you need everybody on the team to feel comfortable, empowered, and responsible for speaking up when they see something that might pose risk to a patient. Great learning lessons for me in terms of how a, how a team could operate in medicine and uh, learned a lot from the way the operators do it. You were the command surgeon for the Air Force Special Operations Command at Herbert Field in Florida and were then the commander of the 16th Medical Group at Herbert as well. This was when the attack on 9-11 happened. Any memorable experiences from providing air support to the Special Forces Special Operations Wing? Lots of memories uh, from those those days. You know, as you might expect, within the weeks after 9-11, our special operations wing was mostly deployed every, every body and every piece of equipment they had. I was commanding the medical group at the time, which supplied the medical support to all the units uh, on the in the wing. And after 9-11 occurred, we knew deployments were coming. But of course, the planners were doing their work. And so we had a pause of a couple of weeks before the, uh, the taskings really started flowing. And during that time, we, uh, we did our best to get ready. But I think the main thing I learned from that experience was the importance of continuous readiness. You know, in the special operations mission, we deployed people frequently, often in small packages, and often on very short notice. And so we had a standard way of operating in terms of keeping them ready that just kept everybody continuously ready. Now, of course, there was always somebody who was injured or was ill, and we would get them back up as soon as possible. But for everybody else, there was no just-in-time readiness. They had to be ready at any time because of the nature of the task. That proved to be very important after 9-11 because uh, once the tasking started flowing to our wing, you know, we had C-5s and C-17s dropping into the airfield literally every afternoon, and then they would load through the night with equipment and people, and then they would depart. And that, that went on for weeks. So we had to get into a rhythm, the medical support of that, in which we would provide health care during the day while we had uh, another team making sure that the people going out that night had everything they needed. And uh, what made this so challenging for the people going out was that this was before there were established bases around Afghanistan time. And so they were truly going to bare bases. Uh, there were no tents. Uh, there were no chow halls. There were no latrines. They were going to a place that had a runway, and they were going to commence combat operations as soon as they got there. 
And so they had to be pretty self-sufficient for an extended period of time after they arrived. So we had to send them truly more prepared than you would for a standard uh, deployment for a sustained combat operation. And so we had to ensure that all of their chronic medical conditions that they they went equipped with uh, medication and other items that would last them for months. And the thing that was extraordinary about it, what our team did there, is we had maybe only a handful out of almost 4,000 we deployed that had to come back for uh, a medical condition that became unstable while they were there. So it was extraordinary work by the team and, and really weeks of 24-7 operations, just getting special operations forces prepared and, and on their way. So you commanded the 363rd Expeditionary Medical Group that was deployed to Southwest Asia during the preparation phase and invasion phase of Iraq. What are some of the experiences and lessons learned from that assignment that you can share with us? Yeah, that was an extraordinary experience. You know, first of all, uh, when I got that assignment, that was the only one-year tour for a medical commander in the CENTCOM AOR for the Air Force. Uh, that was before, well, it was following 9-11, but the, the, the other medical commanders in the theater were all rotating in the air expeditionary cycle. And so it, uh, I was graduating group commander, and I was selected to take command of a, of a larger medical group. And I knew they needed somebody to go to uh, what was then CENTAF, now AFSINT, and do this one-year tour in command, and uh, and I volunteered for it. And it turned out to be one of the best, best decisions I ever made. And so we were responsible for supporting a wing that at the time was enforcing no-fly zones over northern and southern, primarily southern Iraq. Uh, and we were also at the same location as the combined air operations for the theater. So it was a great opportunity for me to get familiar with how a CAOC operates and, uh, and to really uh, gain some initial experience uh, supporting uh, round-the-clock combat air patrols. During the time I was there was when the decision was reached to invade Iraq. And so the base I was on, it got much, much larger, became the largest air wing in the theater. And uh, it was a coalition operation. So we had uh, British and French air forces flying. So we were supporting them as well. We had, uh, we had marine aviation there was supporting them. And so it, it, it grew to a very large wing. We had over 10,000 people there uh, at the peak of our size. And then the uh, 24-7 combat air operations commenced that went on for weeks before the ground invasion occurred as a preparatory action for the ground invasion. So it became a real lesson in sustaining 24-7 combat air operations weeks at a time and uh, dealing with the performance and the fatigue issues and the health issues that came with that. The the sorties that the crews were flying were very long sorties. The maintainers were working constantly uh, at a very high tempo to keep all of the aircraft operational. So there were real fatigue issues in the maintainer. There were safety issues that arose, both with the air crew and the maintainers that were related to fatigue. And so we had to work very closely with the operational commanders to ensure that the uh, fatigue didn't degrade performance and that it didn't start to become a safety issue 
And at the same time, uh, you know, we had to be ready for uh, care for trauma. Now, obviously, we were we were not a trauma center or a trauma hub. Uh, we were there to support the air wing and the air wing operations. We did have some serious injuries while we were there, but it, but it was not uh, they were not uh, combat injuries. The other thing I I learned from that experience was that you're in a deployed environment, whether you're medical or whether you're an operator, you take on whatever role you need to take on in order to see that things get done because there's really nobody else to fall back on. And so really versatility and flexibility became the key for both the medics uh, and the operators. So it was an extraordinary learning experience for me and really, uh, really so impressed with the work of our team there. From 2003 to 2007, you were the command surgeon for HQ Air Forces in Europe. This was a time of high op tempo in the CENTCOM AOR, requiring the management of a significant amount of en route care from the battlefield to CONUS. Tell us a little bit about the successes and challenges you experienced during this time. This was directly following my one year as uh, the Expeditionary Medical Group Commander in AFSINT. And, uh, and in fact, I went directly from AFSINT to Ramstein to take on this job. I, re- I remember uh, flying on the rotator out of Saudi Arabia, and it stopped for fuel at, uh, in Germany, and I was the only guy that got off the airplane. It started right away, and the, and the reason I started right away, as opposed to going home for a while, was that uh, this was at the time when we had invaded Iraq uh, several months previously, and the volume of medical evacuations from theater was quite a bit higher than was expected, and it was sustained. And that that really wasn't anticipated. And so when I arrived at Ramstein, first thing I did that evening was I walked down to the contingency aeromedical staging facility just to see where they were keeping the patients that came off the airvac missions. And the facility was in a gymnasium, and it was mainly cots, and the gym was absolutely full. And I marveled at how many people, how many patients were in there. And these were all pretty much walking wounded or or ill, whereas those that needed to be hospitalized were over at Longstool. And I would marvel to somebody at how many there were. And they said, oh, sir, this is only some of them. They said billeting is full of the rest of them. So the situation was the flow of casualties and the flow of disease and non-battle injury from the force immediately following the invasion of Iraq was much heavier than expected and it was sustained. And so that really prompted the need to really develop good processes there in Germany to be able to expeditiously process those folks, take care of them, get them the care they needed in a timely way, and then get a disposition. Uh, Get them back to the fight whenever possible and get them moved to CONUS when that's what needed to happen. And so it was a great experience working with the Longstool commander, then Colonel Rhonda Corum, and she and her leadership team did an extraordinary job of developing processes for uh, doing what needed to be done and really seeing that those that were evacuated were evaluated immediately on arrival, got what they needed quickly, and then got a disposition and then went either back to the theater or, or back to CONUS. That proved so essential later in that tour when we had a tragic events like the dining hall bombing in Mosul or the Battle of Fallujah that really turned into sustained mass casualties moved through the en route care system. The work that we did with, with Rhonda Cornum and her team to really get all of the processes set up and stabilized actually proved very important to being able to meet those mass casualties that occurred uh, during during our tour there. Following that, you went on to 
take some very senior Air Force medicine jobs, including commander of AFMOA, deputy surgeon general, and then ultimately surgeon general of the Air Force. Tell us some of the, the challenges of those jobs and what you accomplished. What do you think your, your, your major accomplishments were during those times? Yeah, so as, as I uh, was promoted to Brigadier General, General Routabush, the then Surgeon General of the Air Force, gave me the job to uh, take command of the Air Force Medical Operations Agency and stand it up in San Antonio. And with that came the charge to consolidate the management of Air Force healthcare operations out of one organization, uh, whereas previously it had been decentralized across 11 major commands. And so we took that on at AFMOA, built a team, and with that came the opportunity to really overhaul our processes for providing healthcare with, with an eye towards quality and safety primarily but also with an eye towards overhauled, uh, transformed primary care. This is when I started to apply some of the lessons uh, with, our, with our team and a lot of help from uh, the other leaders in Air Force medicine, some of the lessons learned from watching how air crew operate in a flying mission. And so we implemented the patient-centered medical home across Air Force medicine, which is really a team-based approach to primary care. And so it's, it's, it's about utilizing all the skill sets on the team establishing standard practices and procedures in primary care medicine with an eye towards providing good access to care, good continuity of care, but also care that's focused on good outcome. The other thing we did during this time was that we implemented high reliability in Air Force medicine to improve the safety of the health care that was provided. Like all health systems, we recognized that we had an error rate that was unacceptably high. This followed the Institute of Medicine report uh, to Errors Human, which pointed out that the error rate across U.S. healthcare was at a level that would not be acceptable in any other industry. And so we established an initiative we called Trusted Care that was uh, really oriented towards uh, team-based care uh, across uh, all types of support and care and really preparing the teams on the front line to collaborate and work together in a standard way, but more importantly, to create a culture where we empowered the frontline teams to be problem solvers, uh, with the primary role of leaders being the support to the teams on the front line and removing obstacles so that they can overcome the challenges and the problems that uh, stand between them and safe care, good care, and a good experience of care. And so that was the focus of trusted care. But it really all tracked back to what I learned watching how Pavlo crews safely do all the things that they did in the dark of night under such difficult circumstances. That was really the lesson that uh, brought home to me the importance of focusing on teams at the front line of care, empowering them to solve problems, and uh, focusing as a leader on being aware of what their challenges were and striving to find ways to overcome those challenges. Those, those were the things we focused on in, as we consolidated Air Force's healthcare operations. So can you give us any type of inside look in the Pentagon? Do you have any interesting stories from the time that you were the Deputy Surgeon General or the Surgeon General? My last six years in uniform, I was, I was assigned to the Pentagon. When I think of the Pentagon, you know, there's two Pentagon. Uh, there's the Pentagon, the building, and then there's Pentagon, the entity. 
And they are truly two different things. I'll talk about the Pentagon, the entity first. When you watch the news, they're always talking about the Pentagon. And uh, that's just the phrase they use in the news, which, uh, which I often think is funny, that refers to anything that's DOD. It's the Pentagon. Pentagon did this, Pentagon did that. But when you actually work in the Pentagon, you realize that I think the Pentagon, the entity, really has no walls anymore. Because what the Pentagon really represents is just uh, this array of organizations that are really all over the Department of Defense. And these days, they interact digitally, substantially. And so it's no longer so much about what happens inside those walls of the Pentagon. It's just that that's where things tend to come together. Now, the value of having the Pentagon in place is that it actually puts leadership teams in a shared setting. And that's so important to get to know your counterparts and to be able to work problems jointly. One of the interesting things about Pentagon, the building, was that it's, it's, it's like working in a museum. And so I've always liked history. And so just walking the miles of halls in that place, they're full of displays that are, that are fascinating. So uh, a lot of times I was frustrated that I had to I had to get to a meeting and I couldn't stop and look at something a little longer. But it's uh, it's a fascinating building, a fascinating place with so much history. You know, I had I had the displays outside my office of, from the Tuskegee Airmen, and so I looked at those uh, you know every day for years and never got tired of looking at them. You know, when I walk out of the building at the end of the day and in the morning, I I, I would walk right down the hall. Where the uh, where the tank was for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and so I'd walk past the portraits of all the uh, the Joint Chiefs. So it was just amazing to be be there and, and, and be in that place. I was also impressed with you know you, you'd meet people who had some uh, incredibly uh, huge responsibilities, but I always found that they were actually good to work with, easy to talk to, and they were just looking for the truth. And that was consistently my experience. And some of the most humble leaders that, that I've ever been around. I was in the Pentagon barber shop one day. They have a barber shop there that I think probably gives more haircuts than about you know a, per hour. They're very fast, but they're not bad. And so I'm sitting there getting uh, my haircut, and you'd see a lot of people in uniform, a lot of civilians in there. But uh, Secretary Mattis walks in. And it turns out I was in the chair for his barber. She had been his barber for years. And so he he just sat down and waited his turn while I'm getting my hair cut. And I, I was immediately immensely uncomfortable. I said, holy smokes, the Secretary of Defense is sitting there watching me get a haircut. But actually what that really signified to me was here was a humble leader who, who came into this barber shop, probably previous Secretary of Defense's had never been in. And he was perfectly fine with sitting down and waiting his turn to get a haircut. And I subsequently had some opportunities to interact with him at the time, and I found that to be entirely his character. Probably one of my most interesting operational times in the Pentagon was during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa when they were holding tank sessions, uh, meetings of the Joint Chiefs. And it was one of those rare occasions where the tank session was primarily about a medical issue or a medically induced crisis. So those were very interesting tank sessions as we sat in there and deliberated what the U.S. Department of Defense contribution could be to the response to the Ebola crisis in Liberia. And subsequently, we did we did set up an Air Force field hospital in Monrovia that was staffed and operated by a tremendous team from the U.S. Public Health Service. 
that was not the only time a tank session was held on a medical issue. There were other times, but that was probably the most memorable because it was a series of pretty intense meetings and that it was a type of crisis that was quite different from anything the department had responded to previously. So we previously talked to retired Lieutenant General Carlton about risk tolerance and acceptance of change. How do you balance controlling variability through standards with accepting some risks associated with innovation? In military operations, but also in medicine, we recognize the importance of having standards. Uh, But how do you apply standards without squelching innovation? And uh, General Carlton is a great one to speak to that because he was one of the most amazing uh, leaders that I've worked for in terms of really generating, enabling, and facilitating innovation. And his approach to to managing risk was incredible. When you think of how to apply that in in healthcare and medicine, I think the standards are important, standard operating procedure, clinical guidelines, standard uh, ways of communicating among the teams. Those are all essential and important to safe care. But as you implement those standards, it is equally important put in place a working process that enables people to improve the standard. Uh, I believe that is the key. If, uh, if people see a standard that comes out of whatever headquarters is issuing it with no visible way to actually engage on changing or improving upon standard, then the standard starts to feel like just another set of rules. So as we implement standard operating procedure in healthcare, as we design and use checklists, as we train our teams to work together in a particular way, at the same time, we've got to empower them to come up with changes to the standards and empower them to test the changes to the standards and put the ideas forward into a process that truly gives them solid and uh, serious consideration. If they're putting in ideas and nothing ever comes out, they will quickly quickly stop putting in ideas. And then they will think of the standards as just another set of rules. And so you've got to strike the right balance between the two. That's one of the key aspects of high reliability and quality of care, I believe. How can a leader show the people that they're willing to take some risks when those standards are challenged or tried to be improved? I think the main way you can do it is really by having a process by which the ideas truly get to you as a leader. And be very careful about processes that uh, put so many layers between you and the people with the ideas that the ideas get so heavily filtered that they rarely get to your level. So design a process by which you have direct visibility on ideas as a leader. And I saw that in the chief of staff of the Air Force. He had a process like that where an airman out in the field could put in an idea and he and the secretary of the Air Force would actually see the ideas periodically and and get get a synopsis of them and the status of the evaluation of them. And so, uh, and then as you recognize ideas that may have merit, empower people to go out and try the idea. And as people see that you are doing that, that has a very important impact in terms of sending the message that you put forward an idea it will get to the people who uh, have the ability to uh, make a change and that the leadership is willing to take some risk to, to enable you to try the idea. When you first took over the responsibility of being the Surgeon General of the Air Force, what did you find was the biggest leadership challenge? And as you progressed through your job, what did you learn that helped you overcome that challenge? I think the big challenge during my tenure as Surgeon General was that was during the time when... Uh, 
Congress was working to draft the 2017 National Defense Authorization Act to really overhaul military medicine. And so there was a series of dialogues with the congressional staff about uh, how that could be done. And so what was hugely challenging about dialogue was even as we were having the dialogue, the requirements for our deployable support were evolving and changing. And it was evident that we were on the precipice of being able to take more diagnostic capability and more intervention capability into the operational arena than ever in our history. And I think vascular surgery is a great example of that. Um, and so that really had big implications for our readiness processes for our deployable medicals. And so a lot of my focus during those dialogues was on striking a balance by which we could transform the healthcare delivery system, but do it in a way that struck the appropriate balance with uh, new concepts for readiness and putting more advanced care into the field. And when I say into the field, I include in flight, in, in route care, if you will. And so that was a huge challenge because all of the people in the dialogue didn't necessarily see that deployable capabilities were changing and changing rapidly. There's always a tendency to look backwards as you're making those kind of decisions. And so when you looked backwards at the time, you were looking at uh, deployed healthcare that had already changed pretty dramatically. And so while these dialogues were occurring, of course, we still had operations in progress in Iraq and Afghanistan, but but we also had a significant level of asymmetric warfare in progress across North Africa in and around Syria. And so we had forward surgical teams who were a long ways from aeromedical evacuation or any kind of support. And so it was evident that we really needed to pay very special attention to how we prepare those medical teams to go into that very difficult environment and take those advanced capabilities into the field. So let's fast forward to today, 2022. What do you see as the biggest challenge to military medicine? I think it is so important today when cost pressures are so high in the Department of Defense to, as they contemplate adjustments to our military medical centers in particular, that they are very deliberate, uh, that we are very deliberate about establishing readiness platforms that are going to serve our deployable capability well. And as we change uh, our processes for providing care to beneficiaries and the scope of services we provide in our MTFs, we've got to do it with very deliberate eye towards meeting the readiness requirements for deployed support for the range of scenarios to which we uh, deploy our medical teams, everything from uh, small packages in asymmetric warfare all the way up to a major theater war. We dare not uh, focus or assume that you know, the next conflict will be the same as Iraq or Afghanistan because it almost certainly will not. And as we do that, I think we've got to have a very deliberate approach to appropriately leveraging strategic partnerships for the clinical readiness of our deployable teams with trauma centers outside the military health system. That's something that we've uh, believed in in Air Force medicine uh, going back to General Carleton's time. And uh, I think that's absolutely essential going forward to retaining the kind of clinicians that we need, keeping them ready and current. 
And so I think there's got to be a very uh, careful approach to changes to the military health system so that it appropriately balances every aspect of that quadruple aim that we talk about, which is cost, quality, experience of care, and readiness. I think all four of those have to be equally balanced going forward, and we have to do it to, with an eye towards the future, leveraging you know, all the tools that are coming into widespread use now in, in regard to virtual care, but also enabling the innovation that is going to make a difference in the, in the support to combat forces in the future. As technology evolves and as uh, techniques evolve, we've got clinicians in our med centers who are the innovators that can uh, identify how those can be applied in the operational environment. And those are the people we've got to continue to give them an effective platform in which to operate and to develop and test those innovations. So you've had quite a career from a family medicine doc in a rural environment all the way up to having an office down the hallway from the tank in the Pentagon. If your family listens to this podcast in 50 to 100 years, what is something that you would want them to know about your career in military medicine? Well, I, I think I'd want them to know that I was a good physician, that I was an engaged flight surgeon, and, and that I was a good officer contributing to the mission. I think that would be be extraordinary. So we've been speaking with retired Air Force Lieutenant General Dr. Mark Ettinger. Sir, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us on WarDocs, and thank you for your service to this nation. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of WarDocs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.